Hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and this is part three of three of a solo series where I'm going to cover Star Trek 2, 3, and 4. And today I'm covering Star Trek 4, The Voyage Home, which premiered on the 26th of November, 1986, and it was directed by Leonard Nimoy. And the sort of the joke I'd heard at the time is that in order to direct Star Trek 3 as a, a neophyte director, he'd never done a, a film, he had to beg Paramount. And it was so successful a film that Paramount begged him to do Star Trek IV, uh, which is good because it gave Nimoy a chance to inject some of his personal causes into the film. Uh, it's very ecologically minded, and Nimoy was at the time. Uh, so it was written by Leonard Nimoy, Harve Bennett, who also did two and three, Steve Mearson, Peter Crikes, and Nicholas Meyer, who you may recall directed Star Trek II. He also directed Star Trek VI. Uh, and he's involved in the wonderful new series, Star Trek Discovery. And it stars William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Nichelle Nichols, James Doohan, Walter Koenig, and George Takai. It also includes Catherine Hicks as Jillian, a uh, 20th century marine biologist. Mark Leonard is back as Sarek, as he had been in Star Trek III in the original series episode, Re, uh, Journey to Babel. And Jane Wyatt is back as Amanda, Spock's human mother, who we'd only ever seen in Journey to Babel. Uh, Robin Curtis is back as Lieutenant Savick. She took over the role from Kirstie Alley. Brock Peters is here as Admiral Cartwright. He's also in Star Trek VI. Uh, you may remember Brock Peters as the young black man on trial for rape uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird, but Trekkies will certainly remember him also as Joseph Sisko, uh, Ben's, Ben Sisko's father from Deep Space Nine. Uh, the music was done by Leonard Rosenman, and it's notable that they, even though this, you know, Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 are a narrative arc, they make a really good trilogy. They're also the, the very best films of all the Star Trek films. Uh, they went with a different composer. It was James Horner who did 1 and 2, and he did a, a wonderful job. It's an excellent soundtrack. 2 and 3 are, I mean, they're, you know, they're separate soundtracks. You would buy them on CD or, you know. You know, you buy them on iTunes separately, but really they're sort of one long soundtrack, the same thematic elements and all that. Uh, Leonard Rosenman went in a totally different direction as the movie did. It's not grim. It's not military. It's not, it's not about combat. It's a much more lighthearted episode and the music reflects that. So this movie was made on a budget of 25 million, which I think is as big as they had gotten up to that point. And it made $109.7 million, so more than four times its budget. So, you know, this is the upward arc. They'd all made a lot of money. It's not hard to understand that while they were making this movie, they were all Gene Roddenberry was also working on Star Trek The Next Generation. And I recall that because when the VHS tape of Star Trek IV came out, I bought it. Or Let's be honest, my parents bought it for me. Uh, it was not available for private sale in Canada, though I understand it was in the States. Uh, so the one I got was, you know, really just an extra copy that uh, a video store brought in. And the only reason they were willing to do it is that they shared a mall, a strip mall, with my father's uh, dental practice. And so they did a favor for him and they bought it for me. And a Star Trek The Next Generation preview came before the film. So Star Trek was sort of on an upswing here. And they realized, you know, now is the time Star Trek Phase 2 went nowhere okay, we're not, you know, Paramount's not going to have its own network. Let's just sort of, we'll syndicate this. I don't even remember. I think it was Channel 7 at the time that showed Star Trek The Next Generation and what's now part of the global network. 
you know, again, you know, twenty five million bucks, one hundred nine point seven million. This this movie certainly earned its certainly earned its its uh, its pay uh, as the others had. So the first time I saw this, it was in theaters. In fact, I saw it twice in theaters. I don't remember who I saw it with the first time. I know the second time it was with a friend named Michael. There's a number of memories I have with this film, and the first is is that Star Trek Four, which I saw again November of 86, I would have been in grade six. It was the first time I was, well, bullied for liking Star Trek. This is where, you know, grade six, the kids start to be a little too cool for school. And, you know, Star Trek wasn't cool. I didn't listen to the right music. I didn't wear the right clothes, whatever. I was interested in astronomy. I listened to classical music. And, you know, Star Trek was just the cherry on top of that cake. So I do remember I was mocked when they, when my friends, I should say my classmates, Knew that I'd seen it twice, and yeah, it's been you know 32 years since that happened, and yes, I still remember that. I also remember this movie particularly because the I think it was the Calgary Sun, either the Sun or the Herald. I'm going to go with the Sun. Put out this two-page trivia spread on Star Trek Four, and I don't remember most of the questions. Probably things like what was the name of this episode or who played this character or whatever. But one in one question in particular I remember is. What is the lettering and numbering on the hull of the Enterprise? Now, of course, now I know it's NCC-1701. At the time, I didn't have any idea. And in fact, I found the trivia, this two-page trivia spread, really frustrating because I knew almost none of the answers. And it was very frustrating. And my mother had said, geez, well, maybe I shouldn't have given it to you. And it sort of, sort of sent me down this rabbit hole of assuming that in order to be a true Trekkie, whatever the heck that meant, I had to know a lot of trivia. You know, I've been talking on and off about what it is to me to be a Trekkie, and maybe it's time I started to talk about what it isn't. I have a lot of Star Trek information in my head. A, a lot. I mean, the information that I've talked about in Star Trek 2 and 3, in the Star Trek 2 and 3 podcasts, and what I'm talking about now, I didn't look this stuff up. It's in my head. Uh, obviously, the budgets weren't, but, you know, the little trivia details, they are. There was a long time where I believed that a real Trekkie should have an encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek. That's what made you a Trekkie. And you know what? I was wrong. Let me give you another example. Uh, someone I work with has a friend who my colleague has said, oh, he's a huge Star Trek fan. He's the biggest Star Trek fan. I said, well, what makes you say that? And he said, well, he's got this, this basement room, kind of this nerd cave, and it's just filled with Star Trek memorabilia, all the action figures and, and models and all this stuff. And immediately that just struck me as wrong. Why does having a lot of stuff make you a fan? It's certainly, it's a symptom of being a fan, just like having a lot of trivia in your head is a symptom of being a fan, but that's not what makes you a fan. So I'll give you an example. I'm looking around my nerd cave. I have a pewter model of the original Enterprise, like as it was seen in the original series. I've had this since the late 80s. I have three phaser models, a 3D printed Star Trek Discovery phaser, a Star Trek II phaser, uh, that's just a toy, not a 3D printed model, and uh, a toy of the Star Trek The Next Generation Type II phaser. I have a Dachtag, it's the Klingon dagger you see with the two scary, I don't know, what would you call them, pincers. I've got a Star Trek Discovery science badge, and I've got a Star Trek Academy challenge coin, which was struck for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. I've also got a pin from the USS Equilus, the name of the Star Trek club I was a part of in the 80s and 90s, and a very cool, very rare pin, which was struck for the 1991 25th anniversary movie marathon, which at the time was just Star Trek 1 through 5, with a trailer for Star Trek 6. They gave out a special pin that said marathon at the bottom. 
that's what I got. I also have a uniform in my closet, a next-gen uh, red uniform. And I've probably got a few other things. Oh, yeah, I've got a, a toy, a die-cast toy of the Galaxy-class Enterprise-D from Next Generation. Do any of those things make me a Star Trek fan? Well, they're an indication that I might be a Star Trek fan, sure. But they don't make me a Star Trek fan. That I could tell you the class of every Enterprise. Does any of that matter? Does that make me a, a Trekkie? Nah, it really doesn't. We already know what makes me a Trekkie. I talked about a lot this a lot in, in the Star Trek Three podcast. A lot of it is these characters and what they mean to each other. This this understanding they have among themselves that they are family even though they are not blood. And it's also this recognition that these are highly capable, well-trained individuals who are sort of going out into the universe and, and using their skills to do good. It's probably the reason that I love The West Wing, one of my very favorite series. The same thing. Highly capable people who are going into the world, in this case of The West Wing of the White House, to do good. That's what being a Trekkie is to me. But what is the outward sign of that? Well, to me, the outward symbol of any fandom is where you take that. If you're a Harry Potter fan, and I am, what lessons do you learn from Harry Potter and how do you apply them in your life? So let me give you an example that's not necessarily Star Trek related. And you'll sort of see where I'm going with this. Uh, as a kid, my favorite cartoon was G.I. Joe. It's one of one of the reasons I joined the army. Now, I didn't expect to be jumping out of a, a plane with a, a sword on my back and an Uzi in my hand, but it did sort of push me towards uh, joining the army. But what also did is one of my favorite TV shows ever, which is MASH. I like the idea of, of being a medic, of helping. I could serve in the army, I could serve my queen and country, but I could also help people. MASH helped bring me there. So there is an example of fandoms and my sort of outward focusing of that. Here's, here's what I did with that. So what have I done with my Trekkieism and my West Wing fandom? Well, politically, I'm, I'm progressive, and so I try to support progressive political causes and progressive NGOs. I look in the States, and I see they're having some trouble, and so I donate every month to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. I'm Canadian. Why am I doing that? Because I think this is something I can do, just you know, the little bit of money I can afford. I can help do good, and the ACLU is fighting the Muslim ban, and the ACLU is fighting the internment of children, and all these other terrible things. That is my Trekkieism, my fandom, and my West Wing fandom projected outward. It is an example of you know what shaped me as a person, along with Mash and my parents and the people around me and my experiences in life that have made me progressive. And here's where I'm pushing that out into the world. Now, for someone else, it it would be different. Maybe. You love the, the naval aspect of Star Trek, and so you went and you joined the Navy. Or, you know, how many how many times have you heard a, a Star Trek actor talk about how they've bumped into engineers and astronauts and other scientists who said, well, watching Mr. Spock or, or, or Scotty or Geordi LaForge or Picard or whatever made me go into science. And I think that's wonderful. So being a Trekkie isn't about having all of this, this trivia at your disposal. And it's not about how many toys and doodads and baubles and posters that I have in my nerd cave. It's about what it means to me. And so, you know, 
So what does this have to do with Star Trek IV? Well, that two-page trivia spread that I saw in the probably the month leading up to the show. So we're going to do this the same way we did Star Trek II and III. I'll watch the movie. I'll pause it and talk. You won't hear the movie because I'll edit all of that out. If you're curious, the Star Trek II podcast, which I just released this morning, took eight hours to edit. The Star Trek III podcast, I expect to take just as much time. I'll edit that tomorrow. And the Star Trek IV podcast, which I'll probably edit next weekend, also going to take me about eight hours. So these solo episodes, they take a lot longer. In the meantime, let's see what we see. So the very first thing we see, even before the Paramount logo or any of the music or any of that, is a title card. And this title card reads, The cast and crew of Star Trek wish to dedicate this film to the men and women of the spaceship Challenger, whose courageous spirit shall live to the 23rd century and beyond. This movie came out in November of 86, but in January of 86, the space shuttle Challenger exploded two minutes after launch with the loss of everyone on board. So it was a, it was a tragedy for, for the United States, for the space program, and for science. And it, it's very fitting, I think, that these actors and, and these writers and, and, and the crew of the, of the movie decided to dedicate this to the real deal, the people who were going where no one had gone before. And I, I think that's pretty classy. So the music starts off with a standard Star Trek fanfare, but this time, instead of being done by a full orchestra, it's being done by what I'm guessing is a trumpet. It's a little more lighthearted. The, the opening music itself is much lighter. As I'd said, this is a much lighter movie than the others, and the music sort of embodies that. And instead of having the, the title, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, appear on the screen or you know, slide, you know, sort of move onto the screen from behind, it beams onto the screen. And it's kind of a neat book ending that the movie starts by beaming the title onto the screen with the starfield in the background. And the the high point of the film is the beaming of the two whales onto their ship. Just a neat little a neat little juxtaposition. It's kind of neat, you know, in modern films, the credits tend to be, they're, they're always at the end. You, you see almost no credits at the beginning of the film. You see all the, the production companies, and then you sort of jump right in. Uh, the first movie I remember doing that was Braveheart in the 90s. But here, they show not just the main crew, you know, going, you know, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. They actually show all of the guest stars. So they show Mark Leonard as Sarek, Amanda Wyatt as Amanda, Majel Barrett as Commander Chapel. We'll see her in the sort of the command center in um, in San Francisco. Robert Ellenstein as the council president. He's the president of the, the, uh, the Federation Council we've always heard of. So he's the president of the United Federation of Planets. This, I think, is actually the first time in Star Trek that we see the civilian leadership of the Federation. And you think, well, why show all these people like they're going to introduce you to, you to Jillian and, uh, you know, Catherine Hicks and all these all these actors and 
Why drag it out? Well, here's the thing. You get to hear this beautiful opening score and how light it is and how happy and cheery it is. And with the last two films, they were so deep and dark that this is, it's a, it sort of cleanses the palate. Though really, you would have been, you know, it's, it's two years since the last film. But at the same time, maybe you've been expecting another grim experience like the last two. And here, it's this, this, this very cheery, rosy song. And it really makes you realize that this film is going to be different. Star Trek IV, in many ways, reminds me of, say, Shore Leave, the original series episode, or... Uh, the Trouble with Tribbles, or its Deep Space Nine counterpart, Trials and Tribulations, or the Magnificent Ferengi in Deep Space Nine, which is a hilarious, uh, hilarious episode with Iggy Pop as a as a Dominion representative. It's pretty cool. You know, Star Trek has always done these sort of goofy episodes, uh, not so much the Next Gen or the other shows, but definitely the original series had these episodes where you weren't make the t- you weren't meant to take them too seriously. Like, there's a serious underpinning, and, and certainly in Star Trek Four, it's the fate of the world is in our hands. But it's fun, kick back and enjoy. It's lighthearted. It's the one thing I like about Star Trek that I think it does better than Star Wars is that it injects humor. Uh, the humor in Star Wars is, is is very quick, and it sort of comes and it goes, and if you sneeze, you miss the line, and that's it. Uh, whereas Star Trek has entire episodes that are just goofy, uh, not overly so, not cheesy. We're not talking Batman 66 here, but still good a good bit of comedy, and the music in Star Trek IV, I think, evokes that, because the film really is that. So here's where I should probably discuss the parallels between Star Trek The Motion Picture and Star Trek for, Star Trek for The Voyage Home. In Star Trek The Motion Picture, in Star Trek 1, it's about this probe, V'ger, that attacks Earth. And actually, like the first thing we see in the movie is V'ger that's come to Earth and it's, and it's searching for something and it's going to hurt the Earth until it finds it. Star Trek 4 is entirely different in which we the first thing we see is the probe, which... Uh, is searching for something and is pl- and prepare- prepared to hurt the Earth until it finds it. So, totally different. I like the sort of bluntness of it. It's just, we're starting. You know, as we've seen the credits sort of progress, it goes from just being a star field to seeing a, a nebula sort of form in front of us, not like form out of space, but sort of become visible. And then the probe comes right at us. And whereas the probe in Star Trek The Motion Picture, V'ger, appears as this cloud, containing this massive device many times larger than the Earth itself, in which the Enterprise appeared tiny. The probe in Star Trek IV is ridiculously simple. It's a cylinder. It's a cylinder with look looks like a rocky outface, and eventually a hole will open, and this beam of energy will project a small ball, which is like a transmitter, and that's it. That's the probe. That's That's the whole thing. And then we realize that this probe is being analyzed by a Starfleet vessel. And this is notable. It's the first time, I believe, that Star Trek shows a female captain. A lot of people made a big deal when Voyager came around. Oh, well, it's the first female captain. No, no. They had this. uh, With this female captain, they had... They introduced a female captain in a Star Trek uh, Next Generation first season episode called Conspiracy. Although she's really only in the one scene. Star Trek has a progressive view when it comes to race, when it comes to women. Well, sort of when it comes to women, it's, you know, Gene Roddenberry. One of the other captains in this we'll see is 
Uh, he's from the Indian subcontinent with, with quite a thick accent. You know, they don't have a problem showing that the Federation is more than uh, white guys. So now we move on to San Francisco, which is the home of Starfleet Academy, at least the main campus, and Starfleet Command, and clearly the uh, Federation, uh, you know, the, sort of the, the seat of government. Now, in the time of the next generation, we'll see that that seems to be in Paris, at least that's where, even in, in, in Star Trek VI, which is still 23rd century, we see that the office of the president is in Paris. Maybe it's not a big deal going from Paris to San Francisco in the 23rd century, or maybe later on they do move the Federation Council. But for now, it's it's in San Francisco. And the first thing we see, and this is kind of handy, it's a way to catch people up if they've forgotten uh, Star Trek Three, or maybe they never saw it, is that we see, it's really just, you know, clips from Star Trek Three, but it's presented as if it's surveillance footage provided by the Klingons, and it shows uh, Lord Kruge's boarding party entering the, uh, the bridge of the Enterprise, seeing that it's empty, hearing the countdown, and then seeing the Enterprise explode. Obviously, it's just you know clips from Star Trek Three. They use it as uh, as if it were surveillance or you know information lifted from the from the Enterprise computer. Who the heck knows? But it works, and it it reminds us that you know that Kirk and crew are you know, criminals. They are on Vulcan. The Enterprise is gone. They have stolen a Klingon bird of prey. So why are we watching Klingon uh, video in the Federation Council? All right, because the Klingons have a complaint to make. Behold the quintessential devil in these matters, James T. Kirk, renegade and terrorist. What I find interesting is that their depiction of the Federation Council shows more than half of the people in Starfleet uniforms. So maybe this is like the Security Council and not the full, like the full General Assembly. I don't know. Clearly, this is a Klingon representative who's come to complain to them. Now, this is interesting that while he talks, in the background is the Genesis tape that Lord Kruge stole. Well, how did they get that? Lord Kruge had said that even as our emissaries negotiate for peace, we will act for the preservation of our race. He was a rogue. Now you start to wonder, how much of a rogue was he? And once he got the Genesis information, did he transmit it to the High Council? They clearly have it. And which leads you to the next question, why is it the Klingons are complaining about the... Uh, the, the killing of a Klingon crew, that was a rogue crew. Well, maybe it's just opportunism. Yeah, he was a rogue uh, Klingon captain, but let's make use of him to sort of take out of action a well-known, highly capable foe of the Klingon Empire, Kirk. Whatever it is, you know, it's politics. We're seeing politics in Star Trek. And immediately, Sarek sort of steps in and he, he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Klingon ambassador in a debate. He points out that Kruge was acting in, a, in a, an aggressive manner, that this is all on him. And it becomes sort of a, a back and forth, as you would expect in a diplomatic environment between two diplomats, Sarek, the ambassador of Vulcan, and this Klingon. I don't think they ever actually give him a name, this Klingon ambassador, played by, excellently by John Shuck, again in Star Trek VI. They sort of go back and forth and... So clearly, the Klingons in the Federation are negotiating. They aren't in the almost open warfare that we saw in the original series. But things are they're slow going, and they're kind of rough. And maybe it's that the Klingons thought they were finally rid of Kirk when he was promoted. But surely they would have learned about that. And you know, here he is in their face again. And you got to sort of look at it from their point of view to, to discover that 
the people who created, you know, who in fact led the Genesis project were his old, you know, Kirk's old flame and his son. So you can got to sort of appreciate that they're not, they're not pleased that, you know, maybe they're trying to negotiate in good faith, who knows? And they're looking at the Genesis device and they're looking at Kirk's involvement. And now that, you know, the, the, the death of Kruge and all of that, and maybe they've decided, you know, this is, this is a problem or maybe they are really being opportunistic. They never really do say. I should comment on the Klingon ambassador's clothing. He has an attache with him who's in very much the same uniform that we saw in Star Trek three. And that will get used to the sort of, the sort of gray armor with a cloak draped over him. But the ambassador, it's all cloth. He has the same scary boots that the that the you know that his Klingon attaché has that look like they were stolen from a Kiss concert. You know, a big metal with spikes on them. But his are leather, and you know he has the same gauntlets as the others do. These you know these sort of arm coverings, but again they're just leather. He has a sash that's leather. Uh, his hair is more elaborately woven. He's clearly not a warrior. He is a diplomat wearing finer clothing, lighter clothing. It's mostly whites and grays. And it really does communicate that the Klingons, despite what you know, we'll learn, of course, much later in Star Trek Enterprise, that the Klingons are very much a, a culture that has sort of stopped in its tracks. It's become this all-warrior, all-the-time culture, and it glorifies nothing but warriors. And yet there are still Klingons out there who have the ability to negotiate, uh, who have the ability to to do more than just, you know, pull out a blaster or a batleth, which is that funky sword you'll see in, in the next gen. Uh, and this, you know, this, th this costuming is a good example of that. Remember this well. There shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives. So this, this, the sound clip you just heard is yelled in the council chamber after the Klingon ambassador kind of loses his shit on the Federation president because he says, well, what do you mean he's been charged with starting violation of Starfleet regulations? That's outrageous. He says, remember this, there'll be no key, no peace as long as Kirk lives. And someone screams out what you just heard. For decades, I had no idea what the hell the guy was saying. It turns out someone in the, the Federation council was screaming at the ambassador, you pompous ass. So now he's stormed out, and now we go off to Vulcan. And the first scene we see of Vulcan is the last scene from Star Trek Three, which is uh, Mount Sulea, and we get a captain's log. Captain's log, star date 8390. We're in the third month of our Vulcan exile, and it was Dr. McCoy, with a fine sense of historical irony, who decided on a name for our captured Klingon vessel. And like those mutineers of 500 years ago, we too have a hard choice to make. And of course, the uh, the the name they have for the vessel, which is, looks like it was painted, well, it was painted on with just red paint, is HMS Bounty, of course, the famous uh, Royal Navy vessel that uh, saw a mutiny, and you've heard probably heard the story of Captain Bly and all that. If not, there was a good movie with Mel Gibson about it. But yeah, they've chosen the HMS Bounty. Oh, caught an error. Uh, of course, we know that in Star Trek Three, Scotty was promoted to Captain, and he was the captain of engineering on the Excelsior, and he was wearing a captain's symbol on his sort of bomber jacket. But here he's got a commander 
So I'm not sure why that is. He's got, but he's got a commander thing on it, so that's a screw up. Oops. I'll note that the first thing, the first sighting we have of Spock is standing on top of a cliff, looking down, still in his monk's robe, and it was filmed at Vasquez Rock, which has been used any number of times in Star Trek. Uh, if you remember the famous Gorn fight, and they showed it, you know, it's it's these sort of these rocks that sort of go up at a 45 degree angle, and so clearly they filmed there again. The reason. Uh, so many Hollywood shows use Vasquez Rocks is because it's a, a nice quick drive out of Los Angeles and it's a ranch. It's it's private property, I believe. So they can film uninterrupted. And, you know, at this point, I'm sure after all these decades, they've got a decent, you know, infrastructure there to work with. But no, no, it's on Vulcan. And then we see Spock back in what looks like a monastery and he's faced with three computers. And this sort of School Vulcan school setup will be used a number of other times in Star Trek. We see it. Let's see where else we see it. Unfortunately, we see it in the Star Trek reboot, but still, whatever, it's 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 there. And then we'll see it in Star Trek Discovery because the main character Michael Burnham, who is human, was living on a Vulcan uh, science station and was in Vulcan schools. And the same sort of thing, surrounded by these computer screens that to test you, keep throwing all of these these questions at you, and the test is. How quickly can you answer almost trivia? It's not much of a test. It's certainly not a cognitive test. It's a test of recall, but... Computer, resume testing. Who said logic is the cement of our civilization with which we ascend from UKS using reason as our guide? T. Planahath, matron of Vulcan philosophy. Correct. What is the molecular formula of aluminium sulfide crystals? White queen to section 5, grid 6. Queen takes knight, rook takes queen. White pawn to section 5, grid 7. Pawn takes rook. Checkmate. What significant right. contribution to bioengineering was made in Lucarian outposts on Clint? The Universal Atmospheric Element Compensator. Evaluate and conclude. Right. A starship sensor is indicated as being pursued co closely that it occupies the same space as its pursuer. Correct. Identify object and its cultural significance. Klingon mummification glyph. What were the principal historical events on the planet Earth in the year 1987? Correct. What was Kirikim Fa's first law of metaphysics? Nothing unreal exists. Correct. Adjust the sine wave of this magnetic envelope so that anti neutrons can pass through it, but anti gravitons cannot. Correct. What is the electronic configuration of gadolinium? How do you feel? Clearly, Spock is having to relearn a lot of things, having been, you know, having his Katra pumped back into his body. He's having to be re-educated. Now it's throwing all these questions at him, and then it asks this question: How do you feel? And he doesn't understand the question. This leads to a wonderful scene, the only scene with Amanda, where she asks him what's wrong, and he says, I don't understand the question. And she says, Well, you're half human, and the computer knows that. And, you know, this is sort of the struggle of this film is a reconstituted Spock. And as I'd said in Star, you know, in the Star Trek three, this isn't Spock. This is a facsimile of Spock. This is his Katra. It's a, a photograph of Spock in the moment he passed on his Katra to McCoy. That has been impressed on a, you know, on a rejuvenated body from Spock's genetic material. So it's kind of only sort of Spock. And he doesn't really understand how to deal with his human side. The actual Spock had been dealing it with for, you know, I think it was 80 or 90 years when he died. Not not Leonard Nimoy, but the, but the character. But this Spock is having to learn this over again. And this movie will be very much about him coming to terms with what he is. That he's half human and he's half Vulcan. In much the same way that in Star Trek The Motion Picture, he'd been forced to do the same things. So in many ways, I actually never thought of that before. In many ways, here's another, 
you know, mirroring of Star Trek the motion picture. It's not just the plot of the probe threatening Earth based on a misunderstanding, but also Spock having to come to terms with what he is and who he is. This little bit with, you know, where Amanda quite beautifully restates the theme of Star Trek Three. Spock, does the good of the many outweigh the good of the one? I would accept that as an axiom. Then you stand here alive because of a mistake made by your flawed, feeling human friends. They have sacrificed their futures because they believed that the good of the one, you, was more important to them. Humans make illogical decisions. They do indeed. I really like it because it's not forced. She is pointing out the obvious to him using his own words, Spock's own words. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, which he says at the beginning of Star Trek Two, and of course is flipped on Star on him on Star Trek Three. And here she is pointing that out, and it adds it ends with a joke, which again that's the nature of this episode of Star Trek. And now we're back to the probe and the USS Saratoga, and the probe is pretty much on them. And the first thing it does is it knocks out all the primary power systems for the Saratoga. So now we know this probe simply by transmitting, it is transmitting in a way and with such power that it's knocking out starships. That's a problem. So now we go to this operation center where, you know, the president has shown up and he's talking to Fleet Admiral Cartwright and, you know, he's explaining that this ship which has come uh, clearly through Klingon territory because it's knocked out two Klingon ships and it's it's disabling everything in its path and they're not really sure. So then we go to the sort of the distress signal from the Yorktown, which is the one with the uh, the captain from the Indian subcontinent, and we realize we have a problem. You know, this probe, which we now know is on its way to Earth, is knocking out power everywhere it goes. And now we're back to Vulcan as the crew prepares to lift off in its Klingon bird of prey, the HMS Bounty. Now, this always bothered me, and I never understood why they did this, but the bridge of this ship is not the same as it was in Star Trek Three. In Star Trek Three, the captain's chair was in the center, but it was raised up on a platform. And in sort of a circle around Lord Kruge were all these panels with, you know, weapons officer and all that sort of stuff. In Star Trek Four. I think it may even be the same chair, but it's level with the rest. Like the captain's chair is level with everything else. In front of him is a console, just like you'd see on a Federation vessel, with navigation and helm. Behind him and to his right is a console for communication, and behind him to the left is a console for science. Now, maybe, I, I, I guess when I was younger, I thought, okay, well, they've gutted the, you know, they've gutted the bridge and they've rebuilt it with equipment they understand. But here's the thing. It's all still Klingon. It's all still in Klingon. So, you know, maybe I, in, in preparation for this episode, I should have done some research and act, asked why it was they changed the set. But it really bothers me. There was no reason for it other than maybe from a filming point of view because you can put the, the camera in a corner and you can catch, you know, Chekhov and Sulu at the, at, at the navigation helm console. You can get Kirk in the center on his captain's chair, you can get Nichelle Nichols, you can get Uhura in the background at comms. Maybe that's why it was chosen, but it seems to me terribly lazy. 
Systems report. Communications. Communication systems all ready, sir. Communications officer as ready as she'll ever be. So, guidance is functional. Onboard computer will interface with Federation memory bag. Weapon systems. Operational, Admiral. Cloaking device now available on all flight modes. I'm impressed. That's a lot of work for a short voyage. We are in an enemy vessel, sir. I do not wish to be shot down on the way to our own funeral. Good thinking. Engine room. Report, Mr. Scott. We're ready, sir. I've converted the dilithium sequencer into something a little less primitive. And, Admiral, I have replaced the Klingon food packs. They were giving me a sour stomach. Oh, is that what it was? So this is the sort of humor that this, you know, this, uh, this movie has. It's, it's short, it's punchy, it's, it's meant to make you snicker. You're not going to go howling out loud. It's the sort of humor that you would see in most of the episodes of the original series. It's not quite the madcap craziness of a piece of the action or Trouble with Tribbles or Shore Leave, but it's just got a nice, gentle sense of humor to it. And this is where they say goodbye to Lieutenant Savick. Now, as I recall in the novelization, which is not canon, but as I recall in the novelization, the suggestion that's the reason Savick wasn't coming to Earth is she was pregnant with Spock's child, having helped him through Ponfar as he rapidly developed on the Genesis planet. Maybe that was in an early version of the script or in a cut scene, but it's never talked of again, so it never happened. I actually... I think it's kind of a shame that Savick didn't go along for the ride. Uh, She's an interesting character. Uh, Robin Curtis plays her very well. Uh, But I guess, you know, this gives all of the crew, all the main cast, a chance to shine. And maybe having her along for the ride would have taken away from that. I don't know. But there it is. It is nice that she spends some time talking about David Marcus, speaking well of him. This is... You know, again, it's sort of a tying up of the of, of the last elements of Star Trek Three. We won't hear about David again until a very brief uh, captain's log at the beginning of Star Trek Six, where Kirk says that, you know, he I've never trusted a Klingon and I, and I never will. I've never forgiven them for the death of my son. But here, it's just this reminder that David was a good guy and that he died heroically. And then, of course, Spock comes aboard and immediately again we're reminded that he's still having trouble being comfortable in his own skin. He calls him Admiral and Kirk says, call me Jim, don't you remember? And he says, well, you know, it would be inappropriate to call you Jim while you're in command. And, you know, he's still, he he doesn't have a uniform. He's still in his monk's robes, which will uh, play humorously later in the movie. And McCoy comes at him and says, you know, comes at Kirk and says, "Are are you sure this is a good idea letting you know, Spock back at his post like nothing ever happened. I mean, he says, I don't know if you've got the whole picture, but he's not exactly working on all thrusters, which is a cute joke. But of course, you know, McCoy is Spock's doctor. And well, one of his doctors, I'm sure he had Vulcan doctors as well. But, you know, he's looking at his old friend who is his patient as well. And and he's always pointing out the truth. Spock isn't quite all there yet. He's still having some trouble processing things. After all, it's only been three months. And now we're back to the probe, which is approaching Earth. We see the Starfleet, you know, space dock, that beautiful piece of architecture I talked about in, in, the, in the Star Trek Three podcast. And the first thing it does is knock out power on the space station and on Earth. And we actually see the probe with space dock sort of in the foreground. And we realize, you know, space dock, which is enormous, that can hold, you know, half a dozen ships just inside its main sort of top, you know, space dock area. 
sort of the top of the mushroom. It's tiny compared to this enormous probe. And now we get to see what it's doing to the Earth. And unfortunately, this is a special effect that I think they cheaped out on. It certainly doesn't hold up. Where we see the ocean and this wall of water sort of form from the background into the foreground. Like just this straight up wall sucking water into the atmosphere. And, and over the course of the film, we'll see it's, it's literally draining the oceans and causing it all to gather in the atmosphere. Uh, it never, ever made sense to me why they did this if they're looking for humpback whales. Why would you drain the ocean to do that? That'd be like looking for goldfish in your, your aquarium by taking out all the water. Yeah, you might find the goldfish, but... And then we're back to the Klingon bird of prey. They have, in comparison to the really poor special effects work of this wall of water, they've done more model work with the Klingon model, and we have it zoom past the screen, and it looks quite beautiful. And here's another example of a mix between of humor and the seriousness. McCoy sits down with Spock, and they try to have a conversation. And I think I'm just going to play the clip. Perhaps we could cover a little philosophical ground. Life, death, life, things of that nature. I did not have time on Vulcan to review the philosophical disciplines. Come on, Spock, it's me, McCoy. You really have gone where no man's gone before. Can't you tell me what it felt like? It would be impossible to discuss the subject without a common frame of reference. You're joking. A joke is a story with a humorous climax. You mean I have to die to discuss your insights on death? Forgive me, Doctor. I'm receiving a number of distress calls. I don't doubt it. I love that scene. I just I get such a kick out of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a good humor, and and this this exchange, it's right back to the original series when it comes to the Kirk, sorry, the Spock McCoy dynamic. Uh, it's it. This is probably actually one of my favorite scenes in the film. And now we're back on Earth in the uh, Federation, or sorry, the Starfleet. I guess we'll call it the Situation Room. And we see that all fucking hell is broken loose on Earth. You know, the, the cloud mass has increased exponentially. Uh, you know, the storms and the rain, like things are not going well. The interesting thing here is that when they talk, you know, they have a sort of a one of the officers talking, you know, listing the, you know, total cloud coverage over Tokyo and uh, Leningrad has lost all electrical power. For my younger viewers, you may not know that name, Leningrad. You know the city by its historic name that it was returned to after the fall of the Soviet Union, St. Petersburg. But when this film was made in 1986, uh, it was still Leningrad. And here's where we see Commander Chapel, you know, played by Majel Barrett Roddenberry, here credited as Majel Barrett. And she works here. She's, I don't think she gets any lines. She's just sort of in the background. I think maybe this was a nod to Roddenberry to give, put his wife in the show. Yeah, it's him being a little weird. He always wanted his wife to be in Star Trek. But I always thought Chapel was a wonderful character. And certainly Majel Barrett did a, a brilliant job as Luoxana Troy, Deanna Troy's mother, uh, in Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Here she's, it's one of those things, it's mostly for the Trekkies. Oh, hey, there's there's Commander Chapel. And this is, of course, where we discover that Sarek has been trapped on Earth. He has been allowed into the into the situation room. I'm not sure why they let him in, but I guess, you know, when you're when you're the Vulcan ambassador, you get the run of the place. After all, Vulcan is Earth's oldest alien ally. 
And Sarek, you know, ever the Vulcan pragmatist, suggests to the president, maybe it's time to send out a planetary distress signal while there's still time. This is the president of the United Federation of Planets. Do not approach Earth. The transmissions of an orbiting probe are causing critical damage to this planet. It has almost totally ionized our atmosphere. All power sources have failed. All Earth-orbiting starships are powerless. The probe is vaporizing our oceans. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the probe. Further communications may not be possible. Save your energy. Save yourselves. Avoid the planet Earth at all costs. Farewell. And that message is pretty gloom and doom. You know, the first reaction shot we see is Nichelle Nichols. You know, Hoorah looks devastated. Kirk is pretty upset. Even Spock hasn't quite come to terms with his human half. You can see in his own Vulcan way, he's very bothered by what he sees. This movie, you know, has dire consequences. You know, here is the end of the world as we know it. And yet, it's still a lighthearted show. Star Trek has always done a pretty good job of balancing those. Very quickly, almost too quickly they figure out that this is aimed at something in Earth's oceans. You know, Spock, for no reason that I can discern, immediately figures out that, well, this isn't a, this isn't a, a hostile action. And they said, well, McCoy says, well, you think this is his way of saying hello to the people of the Earth? And, and Spock says, well, only human arrogance would assume this is, you know, the message must be meant for man. It was aimed at the oceans. It's kind of a, a leap of logic. My guess is that, if Farron had written this film, if I'd written it, I probably would have added an extra minute of dialogue where they walked their way there. But it's one of those things in movies, they only have so much time, so you make the leap and you just sort of get where you need to be narratively. And so they modify the signal of the probe so that, you know, we get to hear what it would sound like underwater. And of course it is this. I think I have it, sir. And this is what it would sound like underwater. Yes, sir. So this is where they, they realize that it's humpback whale song. And they point out that humpback whales were hunted to extinction in the late 20th century. Now, they haven't been, but here's where Nimoy's impact on the script comes. In the 80s, you had this movement called Save the Whales because there was still a lot of whaling, mostly done by Nordic countries and Japan. By the way, they still do, actually Russia too, and some of them still do a little bit of whaling. There is a treaty to stop it. They haven't signed on to it, but because it's looked down upon, my understanding is they don't do a lot of it, though more than they should, because I think people are starting to realize, first off, you know, these are enormous animals. They are near extinction, and they're quite intelligent, and how do you hunt an intelligent species to extinction. This is the 1980s, sort of the beginning of the environmental movement. You know, I still remember, you know, the save the whales. That was the thing, save the whales. I also remember the army joke uh, when they used to tell you don't wear inappropriate shirts on base and certainly don't wear them when you're out on leave. And the joke was don't wear, you know, the uh, nuke the gay whales for Jesus shirt. Whoever came up with that joke is like, you know, how many offensive things can we put on a, on a shirt at once? Nuke the gay whales for Jesus. But it's, you know, joking aside, it comes from this era of save the whales. 
and Nimoy with a little bit of you know power uh, now that Star Trek 3 had done so well said okay we're going to do another film Star Trek's always confronted important social issues now let's talk about a scientific and environmental issue in the modern world and good for him and of course here's the solution they come up with there is one possibility but of course I cannot guarantee success we could attempt to find some humpback whales you just said there aren't any except on earth of the past yes doctor that is exactly what I said. Well, in that case... Now wait just a damn minute. Spock, start your computations for time warp. Yeah, so they actually... Chapel does have a line, so we realize that, yeah, she's a doctor. She's not serving in a medical capacity, but she clearly deals with medical facilities in the Situation Center. And things are clearly getting bad that they bring these massive braces in to brace the windows in the control center. Uh, I'm guessing that the wind is pounding pretty heavily. Though really, how hard would the, 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 the wind have to pound on these windows up against San Francisco Bay to actually knock out what I'm guessing is transparent aluminum? And then we go back to the Klingon vessel where Kirk is talking with Scotty about converting the cargo bays of the vessel into water tanks. And, you know, of course, Scotty, has, he's been in the engine room. He doesn't know what's going on. And he, he says, well, you're planning on taking a swim? And McCoy says, yeah, off the deep end. So, you know, at this point, they've decided they're going back in time. Now, the Enterprise has gone back in time uh, several times, including on purpose. So there was an episode of the original series where the Enterprise went back in time exactly in, in, the, in the way it'll do in this uh, show, which is to whip around the sun and engage the warp engines and somehow uh, puts you back in time, whatever. They did that in an original series episode where they accidentally, something went wrong and they wound up in Earth's atmosphere, kind of almost adrift, and they were spotted by a, a fighter pilot who they beamed aboard. It's not a very good episode, although it's notable the actor who played that fighter pilot just passed away recently. Star, Star Trek uses time travel very often quite clumsily this they decided screw it we're not going to get serious we're just going to have some fun and it works well enough in the meantime kirk has decided to let the federation council know what it's up to and it sends this message red alert i'm picking up a faint transmission red alert. i think it's admiral kirk calling on screen <laughs> Satellite reserve power. Now. That only the extinct species, humpback whale, can give a proper response to the probe. Do you concur with this opinion? Stabilize. Emergency reserve. Starfleet command, do you read Go ahead. I'm hearing you, Starfleet command. Read me. We're going to attempt time travel. We are computing our trajectory at this time. Get him back! Get him back! And at the end of this message, of course, the windows in the uh, Situation Room break. And this is kind of the, the time travel moment that will come back to this exact moment when they return to the future so we know where we are. 
So they approach the sun, they engage warp drive, and then whip around it. This is one of the more unfortunate examples of what happens when you don't have your science advisor uh, looking at the script because they start talking about, you know, we're going warp two, warp three, warp four, and, you know, things get louder and, and Sulu's yelling, warp five, warp six. Well, here's the thing. If, if you're in the, if you're in Earth's solar system and you're whipping around the sun and you go warp five, you're in like, you're well out of the, you're passing the solar system pretty quickly. Uh, remember that warp one is the speed of light and uh, it just goes up from there. So it's, uh, you know, it, it sounds dramatic, but for Trekkies, it's kind of bothersome uh, because there's no reason for it to be this silly, but whatever. Okay, so they whip around the sun and then we get to see this hallucination Kirk has where they play clips from later on in the movie because, you know, time travel. And then we get to see uh, sort of images of the crew morphing into each other. It's very symbolic and weird and okay, whatever. It, it's sort of an artistic flourish. I'm not sure why they bother. It ends with, you know, this vision of thrusters pushing down on reeds in, a, in water. It, it, it makes no sense, but okay, whatever. I think really what it is, is it's sort of a mental palate cleanser that you've gone from the future. Everyone take a breath. We've had the intensity of the with the intensity of, of, of whipping around the sun, everybody breathe. Okay, now we're in the past. And pretty much as soon as they're in Earth orbit, uh, Uhura receives whale song, like it's a subspace transmission, which, you know, it's not, but whatever. It's the conceit of the movie that humpback, wh humpback whales are somehow in communication with an alien species halfway across this arm of the galaxy. Okay, let's just go with that. But, of course, Uhura, notice, Uhura notices something is weird, that the transmission isn't coming from the open ocean. It's coming from Sausalito in San Francisco. And this is where we learn that the uh, the time travel has sort of destroyed the dilithium crystals. It's drained them of energy. The way a warp engine works is that matter and antimatter are brought together, and the reaction is is sort of that energy, that explosion, is pushed through a dilithium crystal, and then from there out to the warp nacelles, that's how they power the ship. So it's not that the crystals are powering the ship, it's that their structure allows the matter-antimatter mixture to, well, it sort of converts it into something useful, and um, the time travel has destroyed the crystals that the Klingon ship has, uh, because they use, you know, the, the Klingons were clearly using low-quality crystals or something. And so Spock comes up with a 20th century answer, which is the use of radiation from nuclear fission reactors, which is just, you know, a nuclear reactor as we know them. And he points out they had toxic side effects, but we can filter that out. The 80s was also a big era where there was a, a huge backlash against nuclear power, nuclear weapons. I don't understand enough about the science to say one way or the other, but simply in the 80s, this, is, this was the conversation being had. And Nimoy obviously latched onto that and made that part of the commentary for this movie. So they cloak the ship and fly into San Francisco, which is, you know, A, where the humpback whales are, and B, there's a major naval base there. You know, naval vessels use nuclear power. And this is where we learn that, uh, that San Francisco is where Sulu was born. Hikaru Sulu. They'd never really talked about Hikaru Sulu's past. Obviously, the name like Hikaru, he's... He's of Japanese origin, but clearly Japanese-American. I've commented over the course of, of this podcast series uh, how I pick up, I've picked up uh, terms of phrase, like sort of, you know, I've picked up 
phrases that I use, and McCoy's Oh Joy is one of them. It never occurred to me. That's where I got it from. And this is where Kirk warns these people, be very careful. This is a very, very weird place. This is Terra Incognita. There's a great visual where they swear, where everyone sort of looks at Spock and Kirk says, well, it's a foregone conclusion. None of these people have ever seen an extraterrestrial before. So Spock tears a strip off his robe and turns it into a headband to cover his pointed ears and everyone just sort of shakes their head. It's, it, it's a quite a funny visual gag. In City on the Edge of Forever, an original series episode, he wore uh, a hat. He wore a beanie. So it just occurs to me now, for the first time ever, for whatever reason, 80s movies involving time travel seem to have a thing with garbage men. In The Terminator, the Terminator arrives right outside a garbage truck, and in Star Trek IV, the, uh, the, the Klingon bird of prey, prey lands in Golden Gate Park, where two garbage men are you know, filling their truck. In the novelization, one of those garbage men sort of follows these guys around, sort of stalks them through the city. I'm glad that's just a novelization thing. That would have been, that would have added a very sinister, very creepy bit to the plot. But yeah, once again, garbage men, time travel, 80s movies, I don't know. Of course, the garbage men don't see the ship land because it's cloaked. What they see is one of the garbage cans sort of rolls out into the middle of this field. It's mysteriously squished and then the hatch at the back of the ship opens which to them is sort of a light out of nowhere and all these people walk out walk out of this mysterious lit hole and those two guys just freak freak and you know, freak out and drive off it's yeah, it's silly so off they go into san francisco with kirk saying everyone remember where we parked and they decide to show sort of this 20th century culture shock by showing them in the middle of traffic and all these bozos in their Starfleet uniforms, or some of them are anyway. And then, you know, of course, Spock in his robes, he looks like some sort of hippie. It's very, very funny. They almost get run over uh, by, uh, by a car. Kirk swears badly. You watch, you watch where you're going, you dumbass! Well, double dumbass on you! And they realize that they're still, you know, they're still using money on Earth because they see a woman take a uh, a newspaper out of a newspaper box, which it occurs to me you don't see them all that often anymore. It's for the younger among you who may not have ever seen a newspaper uh, box. It's just this metal box you put in a quarter, you open it up, and there's a pile of papers inside. You're expected to only take one and then close it. You don't really see those anymore. If you want a newspaper, you go to a newsstand or something like that. But back then, that was the thing. Uh, the interesting thing is that the first thing you see is the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's you know nuclear arms talks stall. Because, of course, this was just after the nuclear war scare of 1983, where it looked like things were going to get really bad with Reagan uh, and the Soviets. And that led to a lot of negotiations. You know, there was a big nuclear war scare in the 80s in general. A lot of films about nuclear war by Dawn's Early Light, Threads, Testament, uh, The Day After. Uh, Day After actually was, I believe, directed by Nicholas Meyer, actually. Uh, I am never going to review those films on this podcast because I am not interested in ever seeing a film that depressed. But again, this is Nimoy and his activism showing, you know, look what a... Look what a terrible situation the Earth is. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, McCoy says it's a miracle these people ever made it out of the 20th century. But if we remember from Star Trek II, where this film takes place in 86, that in the 90s you have the eugenics wars, where people like Khan, Nooney, and Singh had seized control of large portions of the Earth. And then in the early 2000s we have 
you know, World War III, which is a nuclear war. Whereas our world has sort of stumbled along and more or less things are okay, kind of, sort of. In Star Trek's vision of the future, the chaos of 86 doesn't get better, it gets worse. In the meantime, Kirk, again, having noticed, hey, we need money, he notices an antique shop and he takes Spock with him and they sell the glasses that McCoy gave him uh, in Star Trek II. Of course, Kirk, you know, they're antique glasses and he gets a few bucks for the glasses. Yes, um, 18th century American, quite valuable. Are you sure you want to part with them? How much would you give me for them? Excuse me, weren't those a birthday present from Dr. McCoy? And they will be again, that's the beauty of it. How much? Well, they'd be worth more if the lenses were intact. I'll give you $100. Is that a lot? Hmm. There's another great joke where you know Kirk says, okay, Spock, how are we going to find these whales? And he sees a map of uh, San Francisco sort of laid out on a, attached to a street pole. And, and he says, oh, you know, I'll use bearing and, and directions. Uh, you know, and he, he's all very scientific. Thanks to your restored memories, a little bit of good luck. We're walking the streets of San Francisco looking for a couple of humpback whales. How do you propose to solve this minor problem? Simple logic will suffice. I believe I shall begin by making use of this map. I have the distance and bearing which were provided by Commander Uhura. If we juxtapose our coordinates, we should be able to find our destination, which lies at 283.7 degrees. I think we'll find what we're looking for at the Station Institute in Sausalito. A pair of humpback whales named George and Gracie. How do you know this? Simple logic. And there's immediately a second gag where they get onto the bus. And they immediately get off. Uh, Spock asks Kirk, what does it mean, exact change? Because, of course, all they have are bills. It's quite funny. Again, it's sort of that it's played for a quick laugh and we move on. Here's a great joke that just didn't survive the test of time. Uh, Scotty McCoy and Sulu are wandering through Chinatown. And they're saying, well, what are we going to do to make this tank? And, and, and Scotty says, uh, well, I'd normally just use a some pieces of transparent aluminum and Sulu says, yeah, you're a little early for that. We got to find a 20th century equivalent. And as they're doing this, they walk by a, a building and a billboard has been painted on it. that says, can't find it. Try the Pacific bell yellow pages. So there aren't yellow pages really anymore. All right. Back in the eighties kids, uh, you know, a, a, the yellow pages and the white pages would be brought to your door every year and the yellow pages listed businesses. So of course they're going to use it to look up a place that makes plexiglass. Well, here's the other, the other interesting point here. Someone just recently made transparent aluminum, like in 2018, someone just made that. So the, the joke of this, of this movie, you know, the transparent aluminum is from the far amazing future. No, no, just 2018 which immediately leads us to Uhura and Chekhov, and they've already learned to use the Yellow Pages, and they've discovered that they need to find the naval base in Alameda. And this one's kind of funny because, of course, Chekhov has this thick Russian accent at a time when the Russians were the enemy, and he goes up to a cop and says, can you tell me where the nuclear vessels are? And the cop just looks at him like, are you fucking kidding me? And so they start going from person to person, can you tell us where the nuclear vessels are? Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. 
excuse us. Oh, can you excuse help me. Us? Uh, we are looking for nuclear weapons. Can you tell me where the naval base is in Alamid? We're we are looking for nuke. Hello, we are looking for the nuclear vessels in Alameda. Could you tell me that? It's really quite funny. All the while, this, this cop walking out, I'm thinking, have I got a problem here? And, you know, it's not a modern movie. There's no guns run or anything like that. They just sort of, they find out it's across the bay in Sausalito and off they go. Alameda or wherever it was. But yeah, it's a really funny scene. And immediately we're on to the next joke, which is Kirk and Spock clearly have gotten onto a, uh, a bus. And there's this punk rocker listening to this fucking hilarious piece of music, which you heard at the very beginning of the episode. Now, the story here is that the guy playing this punk rocker was some guy working on the, the, the movie. He was like some junior producer or junior exec or something like that. And he said, oh, I can make that song. I can play that. Uh, I can play that character. So he went and recorded the song on his own, just like in his garage or something. And they gave him the part. And it's just hilarious, like listening to this shitty punk rock music. And clearly he's bothering everyone on the uh, the bus with this huge boombox. And Kirk asks him to sort of tone it down and, and, and the, you know, the, uh, the punk gives him the finger and cranks it up. So Spock gives him the nerve pinch and he passes out, smashes his head into the radio and turns it off and everyone just applauds him. It's, it, it's really quite hilarious. But, you know, then it leads to a, a serious conversation where Spock says to Kirk, you know, I notice your behavior has changed. You swear and everyone is so aggressive. And Kirk says, it's just the way it goes and no one pays attention to you unless you swear and unless you're aggressive. And, you know, it's it's sort of a point, like, yeah, it's done in a humorous way, but it makes the point that, you know, 20th century culture and 21st century culture is very angry and very kind of vile. I mean, certainly when they made this film, they could not have imagined the state the United States would find itself in today, especially politically. Um, and ironically, they had a president who was a freaking actor at the time, though, okay, to his credit reagan had been involved in politics for decades and had been a governor of california but still you know the 80s crime was way up in the 80s in a way we can't even conceive of today uh, there was much more crime in the states especially in the cities and it must have seemed like absolute chaos and this punk rocker and his music about you know we'd be better off dead let's just nuke the world and all that sort of stuff it's perfectly endemic of it but they do it in this humorous way because this guy is absolutely fucking ridiculous with his leather jacket and his dog collar and his mohawk and his nose ring uh, which today is no big deal but back then oh my yeah it's again it's what star trek does well you're allowed to laugh you're allowed to make fun of what you're seeing on screen but at the same time you're meant to think about what they're presenting to you I noticed that one of the guys on the bus is reading Omni Magazine. That was a really awesome magazine, believe it or not, published by Playboy. Uh, but it was just it was a science and technology magazine. It was really good. I, I loved that magazine. It was a real shame when it went out of business. And here's where we're introduced to Jillian, the cetacean biologist, uh, because Kirk and Spock have arrived at the Cetacean Institute. And uh, she gives them a, a tour. And, and this is where they really spell out the problem with whaling and that sort of thing. It's very much an advertisement for the Save the Whales cause. Unfortunately, their principal enemy is far, far more aggressive. You mean man? To put it mildly, since the dawn of time, men have harvested whales for a variety of purposes, 
most of which can be achieved synthetically at this point. 100 years ago, using hand-thrown harpoons, man did plenty of damage. But that is nothing compared to what he has achieved in this century. And, I, and maybe some people would snicker. Uh, it was interesting, I was listening to the uh, podcast Love It or Leave It, and one of the things uh, one of the guests was talking about was people complaining about politics and comic book movies, and the first thing this person said is, have you ever read a comic? Comics, just like science fiction, address social issues. The X-Men is very much about uh, discrimination. Uh, you know, Black Panther is a very political movie, also a very good movie, by the way, and I'm not a fan of comic book movies, but you know, Star Trek was doing that before comics were. And so when I hear people say, well, I don't want to watch the, you know, the Save the Whale Star Trek film. It's like, well, you know what? There were Star Trek episodes about racism and about the Vietnam War and about, you know, nuclear war and all this sort of thing. So why shouldn't they have this? Why shouldn't environmentalism and Save the Whales and all that, why shouldn't that be in a Star Trek movie? Why must they always just be bad guy drama? You know, so I say bring it on. So while they're showing this tour, she stops by uh, a television, which is you know, clearly showing a loop of whaling. And it's pretty gruesome where they show these dead whales and the, 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 you know, the bodies being slit open and the skin being slashed. It's gruesome. And I say awesome because these you know, people in 1986 went to see a sci-fi film and man, they learned something. And they learned about it in as upfront, in-your-face way as possible. And I give the late Leonard Nimoy all the credit in the world. I'd never really thought about the activism of this film before now. I mean, certainly, I, you know, I considered it, but never as seriously as I'm thinking about it now. And it's like, man, what a good job. Like, try to imagine a movie doing that today. Well, you know, it's the science fiction movies that get away with that and the, the fantasy movies. No, not so much, but the comic book movies. You want to see the modern equivalent of Star Trek IV in terms of taking an idea and pushing it forward? Go watch Black Panther. And it's, it's, dis it's discussion of the world, you know, inhabited by black people in the States of African Americans and black people around the world. Man, he did a really good job. Okay, so one of the things in this presentation is they talk about how there are less than 10,000 humpback whales alive. So I just Googled it. I typed in, how many humpback whales are there? And the information I'm getting from Animal Planet, uh, I'll just read it. It's from AnimalPlanet.com. Humpback whales were first protected as endangered animals in 1966. Currently, it is believed 30,000 to 40,000 humpback whales are left, or about 30% of their original population. And that's dated May 15th, 2012. Interesting enough, Wikipedia suggests there might be 18 to 20,000. So I don't know which it is, but the point is maybe we're doing better because there isn't as much uh, much whaling as there once was. So if Star Trek IV helped with that, awesome. So Spock makes a comment because they're in this tour and, and, and Jillian Taylor, Dr. Jillian Taylor, let's not forget, she's a PhD. Uh, Jillian sort of looks at, Spock and realizes something's off, but it's, you know, this is how they meet. So she takes them up to meet George and Gracie, named after George Burns and Gra and his wife, Gracie, who are a, a wonderful comedy team in the 40s and 50s. Thank you very much. Well, Gracie, did you get any mail from home? Oh, yes, I had a letter from my sister, Hazel. Well, that ought to be good for a few minutes. How was how Hazel? Oh, Hazel hasn't been very well. Her feet are killing her, so she's going to have glasses fitted. That should take longer than a few minutes. 
Are my glasses fitted because of feet are killing you? Sure. She couldn't see where she parked the car. She had to walk five miles to get home. Well, if her eyes are that bad, how can she see where she's driving? She doesn't have to. She only drives on streets she's familiar with. Yeah, well, I'm glad she's got a good memory, but she ought to do something about her eyes. Oh, she will. Hazel says she's going to an octopus to see if she needs glasses. She means an oculist. No. First, she'll look at an octopus, and if she doesn't see eight legs, then, then she'll, she'll go, go to an oculist? Yeah. <laughs> well, that ought to do it. And, and, and it's adorable that they're named after them, and we see them from up top, and then they go down below to see them, you know, below water through plexiglass. And this is probably one of the funniest uh, bits where we don't notice, you're not meant to notice that Kirk is suddenly on his own. Spock is nowhere to be seen. And, uh, you know, Jillian, Dr. Jillian Taylor is saying, well, we don't know what the whale song is. Is it just music? Are they communicating with each other? Uh, you know, we don't know. And then one of the ladies on the tour says, maybe he's talking, maybe he's talking to that man. And Jillian turns around and there's Spock in the pool mind melting with the whales and she says what the hell and there's like a nun right there so it's like gag upon gag it's pretty funny of course we also learn that george and gracie are about to be released into the ocean because it's too expensive to keep them and they will be of course vulnerable to prey by whalers which will lead to a pretty good sight gag way later in the movie in the meantime, Dr. Taylor charges back up to the top of the pool with Kirk in tow, and Spock is getting out. And, you know, there's this cool argument where Spock accidentally reveals they're from the future. We don't catch it. Well, maybe we do, but it won't be pointed out the error he's made until a little later. What I think is funny is that when when we see Spock getting out of the the pool his hair is soaking wet but the clothing he was wearing in the pool is perfectly dry that's some kick-ass fabric from an all-desert planet so you know we see kirk and spock sort of walking away and we we know that spock was able to successfully uh, mind meld with them and he was able to communicate the problem, which is you know pretty sophisticated for a whale to understand. But clearly, we were meant to believe that, that that humpback whales are extremely intelligent and they're totally cool with going to the future and communicating with this probe. Fine, whatever. You know, there's more more conversation about the fact that Spock. You know, he used to exaggerate, and 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 Spock says, "Well, I can't tell a lie," and he says, "Surely you remember you used to exaggerate." And he says, "The hell, I can't." But, of course, what he means is, I can't, and I'm swearing while I say it, uh, because he still can't grasp the whole colorful metaphor thing, uh, you know, swearing. There's a neat argument between Dr. Taylor and this guy, Bob, who I'm guessing is like her supervisor, and and he's trying to justify them turning the whales loose, and he makes this comment about intelligence. Besides, we're not talking about human beings here. It's never been proven their intelligence is oh, in any way... Oh, come on, Bob! I don't know about you, but my compassion for someone is not limited to my estimate of their intelligence. And I like that, that it's a reminder that just because we can't interpret the intelligence of the whales doesn't mean they're not intelligent. A mistake that I made in this podcast five minutes ago. I like that it's a reminder that terrestrial intelligence, intelligence the way we as humans understand it. So, you know, primate intelligence, the intelligence of, of Homo sapiens, isn't the only 
type of intelligence out there. And this movie is a reminder of that, that, yeah, the, the Federation is made up of many species, some humanoid, many not, but all communicate in a certain way. And yet we have encountered other creatures that are, you know, not, they don't fly around in spaceships or anything like that. Uh, and yet they are intelligent. The, the Horta from Devil in the Dark and now, you know, the, the whales. In the meantime, Uhura and Chekhov have, wandering along the shore, come across the Alameda Naval Base, and they spot the carrier USS Enterprise, uh, which is kind of neat. Now, my understanding is that the actual carrier Enterprise, and I have no idea whether it's still in service, for the longest time, starting in the mid-80s, the mess hall had murals on the wall that were painted uh, with Star Trek theme, which I think is pretty cool. It should also be noted that the the Navy's late, the U.S. Navy's latest ship, the USS Zumwalt, actually its captain is Captain James Kirk. So yeah. So in the meantime, Kirk and Spock are walking along, and Jillian spots them driving along in her crappy old pickup truck. And Kirk makes the joke, you know, when she asks, you know, what about this guy? You know, what about this guy beside you? Of course, she means Spock, who's in a robe with a headband, and he says. Oh yeah, he he you know, he was uh, back with the free speech movement in Berkeley in the '60s. I think he did a little too much LDS, and she looks at him, LDS, huh? It, you know, because of course, how the hell does Kirk know about you know 20th century illegal drugs? In the meantime, she agrees to give them a ride, Kirk and Spock, and you know she threatens them. You know, don't do anything funny. I've got a tire iron right where I can get to it. For some reason, for years, I thought tire iron was a euphemism for a gun. No, no, it's like, you know, the iron, you know, it, it's the thing you use to remove the nuts on your, uh, and, and bolts on a vehicle so you can change the tire. So as they're talking, this is where we, we realize that Spock has slipped up. What did you mean when you said all that stuff back at the Institute about extinction? I meant that meant what you said on the tour, that if things keep going the way they are, the humpbacks will disappear forever. Oh, that's not what he said, farm boy. Admiral, if we were to assume those whales are ours to do with as we pleased, we would be as guilty as those who caused, past tense, their extinction. I have a photographic memory. I see words. Are you sure it isn't time for a colorful metaphor? Spock, for no reason I can discern, just announces, Gracie is pregnant. And she freaks out and says, how do you know that? Well, Gracie knows that. And this winds up being, you know, Kirk saying, look, we're not with the military, but we can take these whales somewhere where they're safe let's talk about it over dinner, which I think is maybe sort of a, a joke back to the days when Kirk was, you know, wooing every woman in, in view. But it does add, it does allow for another funny clip where the humor of the situation and the fact that Spock has not yet come to terms with his human half and his old way of doing things, it all sort of comes together with this. I have a hunch that we'd all be a lot happier discussing this over dinner. What do you say? You guys like Italian? No. Yes. Yeah, no. no. Yes. No. Yes. I love Italian. And so do you. Yes. And now we're off to Plexicore, uh, with makers of Plexiglass, where McCoy and, and Scotty have shown up pretending to be uh, a professor and his assistant where uh, they're taking a tour and it's one of the more interesting scenes 
Uh, remember I'd said that someone has just figured out how to do transparent aluminum, and I promise you those scientists were uh, inspired by this movie. But Scotty says to the, the, you know, the, the guy running this factory, says, you know, how big a piece of plexiglass would I need to contain this much water? And the guy says, oh, that's easy. You need, you know, such and such a size. And he says, what if I told you you could, you could do, you know, the same size item to hold the same amount of water, but only one inch thick? And the guy looks at him and says, you're crazy. And Scotty says, well, can I have access to your computer? And he sits down to type on this computer and it's this old Macintosh like an old Macintosh, which is like a box. And he says, hello, computer. And of course, the computer doesn't answer. And McCoy points to the mouse. and he goes, Ah, so Scotty picks up the mouse like it's a microphone and says, hello, computer. And the <laughs> manager says, just use the keyboard. And so he starts to type out the uh, this, this complex formula. And it's neat because it's one of the few times you'll notice that James, James Doohan, who plays Scotty, is missing a finger. And it's worth noting... James Doohan served the Canadian military, specifically the Royal Canadian Artillery. And he was in the landing craft at Juneau Beach on D-Day. And he took fire from the Germans and two bullets passed through his, I believe, left ring finger. No, correction, it's his right hand. And tore the finger off. And he'd always done a really good job of hiding it. But here, viewing him typing at a computer uh, the camera sort of facing toward him, you can sort of see, oh, yeah, he's missing a finger. You know, it ends with, you know, McCoy taking him aside and saying, you realize if we give him the formula for transparent aluminum, we're changing the future. And Scotty says, how do you know he didn't invent the thing? And McCoy says, oh, yeah, good point. Well, okay, <laughs> unless that uh, unless that guy in 1986 grew up to be a chemical materials engineer in 2018. But okay, it's still, it's a funny scene. Uh, then we get to see Sulu. I'm not sure where the hell he is, but he's, um, for whatever reason, Flexicor has as a transport vehicle an old Vietnam-era Huey helicopter. And this is where we learn that Sulu knows how to fly them, because of course he does. But I guess, you know, in the same way that someone in the modern world knows how to ride a horse or chuck wagons, and we just had the stampede here in Calgary. I guess, why not? If you're a pilot, why wouldn't you learn something fun like flying an old 20th century helicopter? So, okay. In the meantime, Jillian drops Spock off in, in Golden Gate Park because he's not going to join them for dinner. She says, what, is he going to just wander around in the bushes? And he's, Kirk shrugs, yeah, it's his way. Uh, and, of course, the minute they're out of, you know, the, the truck is out of sight, he beams aboard the ship. So off Kirk and Dr. Jillian Taylor go off to dinner. They cho- they choose a uh, pizza place and they're talking. And, you know, she reveals that they'll be flying the uh, the planes, or so fl- flying uh, George and Gracie to Alaska on a modified 747. That's the last they'll see of them, but they'll have a radio transmitter. And he says, well, can you give me the, the radio frequency? She says, no. Things take a humorous turn because at that point in the middle of the, the dinner, uh, his communicator beeps, and it's his crew saying, we're about to beam in Chekhov and Uhura. And he says, phasers on stun, good luck, Kirk out. And I remember this is long before cell phones. And Jillian Taylor looks at him like, okay, what the fuck? She's starting to wonder whether he's nuts. At this point, you know, she reveals that noon tomorrow, the whales are being shipped out. So off they go. But in the meantime, we're going to see Chekhov and Uhura in 
in the enterprise in the in, in the aircraft carrier and of course there's guards and, and guard dogs and marines and a lot of guns and they sort of sneaking around and they find the reactor and they've got some device mm-hmm. to extract the high energy photons and the minute they do there's a problem there it is again that's too weird commander our two gents were running a test program Yes, sir, but we apparently are getting a power drain. I mean, it must be coming from inside the ship. Hmm. CIC Command Duty Officer Commander Rogerson. Yes, Chief, we're tracking that too. What do you make of it? Now, what I'll note here before things we start talking about how things go crazy is the juxtaposition of the inside of the engine room of the carrier enterprise with it, with you know, pipes and and, and graded floors and in very crowded and very industrial looking compared to the way the architecture in Star Trek is with you know smooth lines and open rooms and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, very, very different. And then we get to those shite Star Trek reboots where they show the Enterprise, you know, the USS Enterprise, the Starfleet vessel, as having an engine room that is very much like well, like this Enterprise, pipes and graded floors and all of that. Though ironically, apparently, God, J.J. Abrams used like a Budweiser factory, you know, a beer factory. He used that as the engine room. It's kind of ridiculous. So, you know, this is sort of the whole point of J.J. Abrams not understanding Star Trek, which by his own admission he doesn't, is that the clean, simplistic openness of Star Trek is replaced with the heavy, angry industrialization that Roddenberry and his art direction was trying to get away from in the original series. Because in here in Star Trek IV, we're seeing that sort of crowded pipe hell juxtaposed with, you know, the memories of what the Enterprise starship looks like. But now this maze of vents and and steam pipes and reactor rooms, now they're a problem because now, now the Marines are coming. And, you know, it sort of goes back and forth between what's going on on the on the Enterprise carrier and, you know, Kirk and Taylor. She drops them off in the in the park and she tells him, wow, you're just that just bullshit what you just told me. And then he sort of walks off and he's beamed out. And, and that's when she's starting to wonder well, what's going on, because suddenly, you know, she's seen a flash of light in her rearview mirror. She stops to look and he's gone. And maybe it's her first hint that he's very serious in what he's saying. So now the chase is on. They have the photons they want, but in the meantime, in the Combat Information Center, the CIC, they know something's wrong, as you've just heard, and they call it the Marines. So Hura's able to beam out, but they have to do them one at a time because power on the ship is, uh, on the Bird of Prey is so minimal. And then Chekhov is standing around there saying, okay, Scotty, now would be a good time. Scotty, now would be a good time. Right! Now here is one of this awesome scene where they've got uh Chekhov in a, in a in an interrogation room of some sort and some guy in a suit I'm guessing a CIA is interviewing him and it's it's pretty hilarious Commander Pavel Chekhov Starfleet United Federation of Planets All right commander Is there anything you want to tell us Like what like who you really are, and what you're doing here, and what these these things here are. I am Pavel Chekhov, a commander in Starfleet, United Federation of Planets, service number 656-5827D. All right, let's take it from the top. The top of what? Name. 
My name? No, my name. I do not know your name. You play games with me, mister, and you're through. I am? May I go now? What do you think? He's a Rusky. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Of course, he's a Rusky, but he's a retard or something. So, uh, Chekhov makes a, makes a, a grab for the Klingon hand phaser, which isn't like the full on disruptor. It's this shitty little thing. And, and it's like, and the CIA goes, okay, put down the ray gun. And he says, you know, if you don't lie on the floor, I'll have to stun you. So the guy says, okay. And the thing malfunctions because of the radiation. And now we're led on one of the two sort of madcap chases, both involving Chekhov that are in this movie. And this one is him trying to escape the aircraft carrier and him racing among, you know, what is literally thousands, not that we see them, but it's, you know, thousands of, of sailors and Marines aboard this aircraft carrier <laughs> and the Marines chasing them. And it's, you know, it, it's played for fun. Certainly the music is very fun. But it ends quite seriously when when Chekhov falls off of the main flight deck of the Enterprise carrier and lands on a lower deck and he's injured and he winds up in the hospital. You know, I'm back aboard the uh, the Klingon bird of prey. Uhura is back at her station trying to listen in for a military chatter. You know, for Chekhov, you know, he, she's hearing nothing. Kirk calls down to engineering, asks Scott, you know, so how's the recrystallization going? He says, well, you'll have it by tomorrow. Kirk kind of flips out on him, cuts the communication, and Scott says, oh, he's in a wee bit of a snit. And Spock says, he's a man of deep feelings. And Scotty says, "Ah, hey, what else is new? So, you know, it's it's sort of a wink and a nod back to the overdramatics of Kirk from the show. And, you know, okay. So now it's the next morning and Jillian Taylor shows up for work to discover the tank is empty. Uh, her supervisor, Bob, says they were moved out in the night because they didn't want a media circus. They thought it would be bad for the whales. And besides, we thought it would be better on you. And she says, you let them go without letting me say goodbye, you son of a bitch. And she slaps him. Very 80s thing. You know, well, really, all of cinema up to that point and still I on. And after that, where one can slap a man and... He's got to just take it, but certainly the opposite is not true. 80s films, what are you going to do? In the meantime, we hear the, the Star Trek music flourish, so we know that Jillian now sitting back in her truck crying. It's dawned on her, hey, wait, that crazy guy who said he's from the future. Maybe he really is. I'll go ask him for help. So she drives off. And at the same time, we see Sulu flying the transparent aluminum uh, over the bay in his Huey, there's a cute little scene where he's fucking with the the knobs and he accidentally turns on the uh, the windshield wiper and okay whatever. And this is where sort of present and future collide because as Dr. Jillian Taylor drives into the Golden Gate Park space where the the cloaked ship is hiding, she spots Sulu overhead in the Huey lowering in the uh, the transparent aluminum. But what she sees is. The upper half of Scotty floating in the sky, bringing, you know, guiding in this, this slab of transparent aluminum, which disappears into nothingness. And she gets out of the car. She starts screaming, Admiral Kirk, Admiral Kirk, can you hear me? And she smashes into the landing gear of the, uh, 
of the cloaked ship. It's quite so. She starts screaming, "Admiral Kirk, Admiral Kirk!" Uh, Scotty calls down let to let Kirk know there's a problem, and he beams her aboard. And this is where she realizes, "Holy shit, you were telling the truth." Well, yeah. This is where he, you know, she points out, "Hey, you know, we got to go right now. We got to, um, you know, we got to go get those those whales. They've already been taken." He says, "Well, we're a ship with a missing man," and this leads to probably one of the funnier. And probably at the same time, most damning scenes of the film, which is them going to rescue Chekhov, who, of course, was injured in the escape. And now he's in a hospital. You know, at this point, Dr. Taylor sort of figured it all out. She's, you know, she's seen the ship. She was beamed aboard. She has seen Spock without his uh, headband on. So she's seen the eyebrows and the ears. And she is sort of immediately bought into this. And at some point or another, I remember watching this with, uh, someone I was dating and she said it was ridiculous that uh, she wasn't a Star Trek fan. She'd never really seen the show. She said it was ridiculous that jo- Dr. Jillian Taylor in the space of maybe 20 minutes accepts all of this as true. And I pointed out that in fact, being a scientist, I would wager she would be the most able to accept it. You know, I think if aliens touch down tomorrow, the people most able to adjust are going to be, the science-minded and the science fiction fans, of course. And so, yeah, I think Dr. Jillian Taylor, especially, you know, being desperate to save these whales, would sort of quickly adapt. I mean, okay, if this were like a seven or ten episode miniseries, yeah, there'd be an entire episode where she adjusted to the fact that Kirk really is from the future. This is a two-hour movie, so we gotta we got to make allowances. But I really do think that being a scientist, she is able to adapt to her situation pretty well you know intellectually seeing what's going on around her and saying okay maybe kirk was telling the truth one thing i'll get into before we actually dive into discussing the hospital itself is that when uhura tells kirk you know Chekhov's in in surgery in mercy hospital in the mission district uh he's not expected to survive and mccoy says don't please don't let him don't leave him in the hands of 20th 20th century medicine and Spock steps in and says, Admiral, may I suggest that Dr. McCoy is correct? We must help Chekhov. Is that the logical thing to do, Spock? No, but it is the human thing to do. This is the first hint that Spock is starting to figure it out. He's starting to understand that there is more than the cold logic of Vulcan in life. So, you know, First thing, McCoy says, well, we're going to have to look like physicians. So what happens? Kirk, McCoy, and Dr. Taylor walk in, all in scrubs with masks and gloves in the whole nine yards. It's a little over the top, but okay, let's run with it. So Kirk and, and Jillian go off in one way, and, and McCoy looks, he's walking through another. He is absolutely fucking horrified by what he sees. This might as well be the, the Spanish Inquisition, as far as he's concerned. And he comes across this old woman who is bloated and, and, and she's got a nasal cannula. That's the sort of the plastic thing across the nose that provides oxygen. And she's got, you know, she's hooked up to all sorts of IVs and there's a plastic covering sort of over her and she's in a lot of pain. And McCoy, who's got, you know, the traditional leather doctor's bag, I assume he's grabbed it from somewhere, stops and talks to her. What's the matter with you? Kidney dialysis. Dialysis? My God, what is this, the dark ages? Here, you swallow that, and if you have any problems, just call me. 
and you think, okay, you swallow a pill and that's the end of it. But of course, later on in this chase scene, we'll discover that she's grown a new kidney. It's a little much, even for 23rd, 23rd century medicine. But remember I said, it's, it's all at once the funniest scene and the most damning. And, you know, I, I used to be an army medic. I understand more or less the state of modern medicine. Um, I've recently undergone two minor surgeries myself. I had my gallbladder out two years ago, which led to an incisional hernia. Hooray. And I had that fixed. It's July. I had it fixed at the end of May, just before my 43rd birthday. Happy birthday to me. So, you know, I, I know what a modern hospital looks like and all this sort of stuff. And I, I keep, you know, I try to keep up on on the medical literature, though certainly I don't know as much as, as a physician. But even I understand that, you know, medicine is kind of barbaric. We we tend to do things by force, certainly not as much as we did in 1986, but still a lot. You know, when your kidney goes, you're done. You know, I look at my father in his dying days, and he he's not yet passed, but that is soon. And you know, we look at the ways. I look at the ways the the doctors are are seeing to him, and then you compare that to the the medicine you see in Star Trek in the 23rd century, where. You know, there's no big pharma anymore. I, I hate that term. There's no pharmaceutical industry anymore to make make this about profits. You know, drugs are developed because they're needed and because scientists are out there to do the work because it's it's the good work to be that needs to be done. And so medical science, you know, with input from other species and their science, you know, the whole point of the Federation is let's all pool our resources and make everything good for everyone, you know, is such a such a stark contrast to the monstrosity of a modern hospital to say nothing of the American healthcare system. So they figure out where it is that, you know, Chekhov is and they take a, a gurney and they put uh, Dr. Jillian Taylor on it. They cover her with a blanket. So presumably she's pretending to be a patient and they get in an elevator to go up one flight where Chekhov is being operated on in the security wing and they listen to these two doctors talking and, and, and they're talking about all these procedures and, and McCoy can barely keep his, uh, his disdain to himself. So they try to get into the operating room where there are two armed police officers because, yeah, you know, Chekhov's a Soviet spy, don't you know? And they force their way through by having, you know, Jillian scream and ow and, and, and you know, God damn it, we need to get in there. And, and, and McCoy uses this great diagnosis on why he needs to get into the operating room because these cops don't know any better. Damn it, do you want an acute case on your hands? This woman has immediate postprandial upper abdominal oh. distension. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. What did you say she's got? Cramps. Okay, so I actually did at some point look up that uh, that diagnosis. Diagnosis. It's uh, uh, cramps you get after eating too much food. <laughs> so we go into the operating room and, and Chekhov's already on the table and the surgeons are there and they've got like a, a drill because they're going to drill holes in this man's head. And McCoy has other ideas. <laughs> Who are you? Why aren't you masked? Who are these people? I don't know. What the hell is that? What are you doing? Towering of the metal meningeal artery. What's your degree in? Dentistry? How do you explain slow impulse, low respiratory rate, and coma? Fundoscopic examination. Fundoscopic examination is unrevealing in these cases. A simple evacuation of the expanding epidural hematoma will relieve the pressure. My God, man. Drilling holes in his head's not the answer. The artery must be repaired. Now put away your butcher knives and let me save this patient before it's too late. 
So they force the operating staff into a side room. They melt the door with the you know, shitty little phaser. What I find interesting is they're using these crappy little hand phasers from the Klingon ship when, yeah, they should have it. Yeah, they do have at least one Federation phaser because when Kirk boards the Klingon vessel and sticks up malts, he has a phaser. So I, I guess they just didn't bring it with them or whatever. I don't know. So they put some little doodad over Chekhov's head and they repair the artery without ever breaking the skin and he wakes up and Chekhov is a little out of it. And so you get this exchange. Pavel, talk to me. Name, rank. Chekhov. Pavel. Rank. Admiral. What I appreciate, though, is... While all this is happening, the surgical staff is watching from this closet they've been locked in, which has a glass door, and they're watching with concern because you know, they're doctors and nurses and the anesthesiologist, who, of course, is also a physician. They're all genuinely concerned about the patient. They didn't have to, like, Nimoy did not have to do that. He could have just had the actors march into the closet and then not bother bringing them back for the next shot. But he does, and it's that sort of attention to detail. I'd referred several times in this podcast to this amazing duo called the Oral Knots, and they did this thing called the Schwarzenegger Kill Count. And when they talked about the police shootout scene in Terminator, uh, one of the Oral Knots points out that at one point someone shoots the Terminator and the glass behind Schwarzenegger shatters. And the Oral Knot had said, you know, the host of this podcast or whatever it was, had said, you know, that's attention to detail showing that the bullet had passed through the Terminator. And it's the little details like that that I like in a movie where the director took that extra second to think, okay, how would this play out? And so Leonard Nimoy has said, okay, well, you know, these doctors, despite the fact that they've been held up at gunpoint or phaser point and locked in a room, they're still concerned about their patient. Jillian McCoy and Kirk bring Chekhov out of the gurney or out of the, the surgery, you know, out of the surgical suite on the gurney and the cop asks, how's she going to be? And he says, he's going to be fine. He says, what do you mean? You came in with a she. And Kirk says, one damn mistake. And they make a run for it. And that's where you realize that, you know, they've stolen the patient. And there's another run through the hospital. And it's mostly just sort of people slipping and sliding all over the uh, the hospital, you know, floors while Kirk and crew try to escape. They pass the little old lady and she's yelling, I've got a new, ki- I've got a new kidney. Doctor gave me a pill and I got a new kidney. And they sort of beam out, and then they're on the ship, and they're good to go. Okay, maybe not as humorous as I remember it, but still pretty humorous. Okay, so a little bit of Star Trek lore here. You know, they, they, they beam out of the hospital. Why they don't beam them right onto the ship, I'll never know, other than it makes for a nice little scene in the park outside. And Chekhov is helped aboard, and they close the hatch, and it leaves Kirk and Jillian alone. And, and he says, look, I'm not taking you with me. Just give me the radio frequency. She gives it. And he pulls out his communicator and says, Scotty, beam me up. Now, this isn't so much a joke anymore, but it certainly was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that the famous phrase is, beam me up, Scotty. Here's the thing. Kirk never says it. Never. Not once. He says, Scotty, beam us up. Beam us up, Scotty. Here it's, Scotty, beam me up. But never, ever does Kirk say, beam me up, Scotty. The probably the most known pop culture phrase in terms of Star Trek for, for most of Star Trek's first 30 years. Beam me up, Scotty. It's never said. In the meantime, Scotty does beam him up and she jumps into the transport beam, Jillian, and 
because she she wants to go back to the 23rd century because she's got no one here and she wants to look after the whales and yeah in the meantime off they go in search of the whales you present the appearance of a man with a problem your perception is correct doctor in order to return us to the exact moment we left the 23rd century i have used our journey back through time as a referent calculating the coefficient of elapsed time in relation to the acceleration curve naturally when someone says something to me overly complicated something that makes no sense to me i always respond naturally when i met my section commander in basic training at wainwright this guy named master corporal firth in his uh, non-military days because this is the reserves he was like this math, math wunderkind for ibm and I, I guess as a way to sort of maybe establish dominance he'd walked into the tent and, and after a few minutes he looked at me and said do you realize that they proved x equals y or you know whatever and he went off with this long mathematical principle says do you realize they just proved that and i just sort of looked at him and said naturally i had no clue what he was talking about so yeah, this is where I got it from. So, you know, it's a 12-minute flight, apparently, by Bird of Prey from San Francisco to the Bering Sea. And when they get there, uh, the first thing they see is a whaling vessel. And this whaling vessel, uh, these guys are right out of central casting from an old show, an old showing of uh, Moby Dick, I'm sure. Uh, they, they, everyone has a beard. The captain is this weathered old guy. They all speak like they just sailed out of a harbor in Maine, which is a problem, this is freaking Alaska, uh, but they all sound like they uh, they just came off the east coast of the United States or Canada, but okay, whatever, big bad whaling ship, and so they, you know, as the the bird of prey flies in to protect the the whaling vessel, the the whalers prepare, prepare to fire their harpoon, and when they do, of course, it it hits the cloaked ship and just sort of drops and captain says what the hell hit the pole and suddenly the the bird of prey decloaks and they just freak out and they try to turn the ship around and make a run for it and in the meantime you know the whales are beamed aboard you know again we have a vision of nimoy's activism is that when they show the sort of the build-up to the firing of the harpoon we see the harpoon close up it's this cruel cruelly shaped rusty monstrosity the ship is rusty and then we see these the best shot we've seen of the whales i assume they were models these graceful creatures who sing in the sea and then back to the cruel looking harpoon uh it's very clear where nimoy's uh sympathies lie and of course ours as well so there's another peek into spock's returning humanity that once the whales are on board, uh, as Kirk is heading out with Jillian from the bridge to go take a look at them, Spock says, I'm going to make a guess. And Kirk says, well, that's extraordinary. And Spock looks to McCoy and says, I don't think he understands. And, and McCoy says, oh, no, he understands. It's just he's happier with your guesses than most people's facts. And Spock says, well, then I shall endeavor to make a good guess. But again, it's this whole, he's having to relearn how to be human, uh, which includes, you know, not always waiting for all the facts sometimes having to use your gut you know we're seeing the evolution of spock or the return of spock to his his full self i guess you'd call it so they see the whales and, and, and you know kirk says you you know we may not make it out of here you might have lived longer had you stayed on earth and she says well you know i belong with these whales besides who in the 23rd century knows about humpback whales which you know fair enough my, my first degree is ancient and medieval history and, and we often talk about how much we don't know about the ancient world 
uh, because over time information has been lost. Uh, of course, in the Star Trek timeline, 1986 is followed, as I've said, by the eugenics wars and World War III. How much data was lost and how much of that is biology of extinct animals? Chances are it survived, but there would be no through line of, uh, of scientific knowledge of species that no longer exist, especially after a nuclear war. You wouldn't expect that major cities destroyed. The first thing people would say is, well, let's make sure we preserve the, the science of an animal that we drove to extinction just recently. Don't worry, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to work rebuilding our society. You hang on to that whale knowledge. So, you know, she's right. She's going to go into the 23rd century and she's going to be a new, a new font of knowledge for two whales who, who knows if they can repopulate the species. I guess there's always cloning. But in the meantime, we know that, you know, there's a problem because the, uh, you know, this rickety old bird of prey is not designed to fly through time, especially not twice. So Kirk heads back to the bridge. So this time as they, they whip around the sun, we don't have the dramatic flashbacks or anything like that. They're simply, they're simply on the other side and, you know, we made it. And then immediately they are, you know, their power is knocked out by the probe. And so, you know, we start to wonder, well, where are we? And then immediately we go back to the, uh, the bit in, in, in Starfleet's control center where, you know, Admiral Cartwright says, you know, get him back, you know, Kirk. And the window explodes and Sarek looks out and says, look, and there's, you know, the bird of prey, which has conveniently not only found its way all the way back to Earth, uh, before losing power, but has managed to crash land in, you know, to, to land rather in, uh, in, in, in San Francisco Bay. Because of course, but you know, whatever, that's fine. So there's this very dramatic scene where the, the bird of prey barely under control flies under the Golden Gate Bridge and crashes in the water and they blow the hatch and everyone escapes except Kirk who heads down to the, uh, the engine, sorry, the storage area where Scotty is not responding. Of course, Scotty is down there. Uh, Dr. Jillian Taylor is down there and the whales are down there and they fight to, you know, blow the hatch and, you know, you know, free the whales, which they do. The whales start communicating with the, the probe, the probe communicates back and then, you know, it's sort of a back and forth. And then the, the probe seems okay with this and heads out and all the power comes back on the the rains immediately stop immediately everything is better all the power on uh starships is back uh space dock and all that sort of stuff and then you see the the crew of the enterprise sort of hanging on to the outside hull of the bird of prey and they're they're laughing and crying and even spock is overcome with emotion and then we see them rescued it's Maybe a little overdone. I'm not sure how I feel about the sight of Spock laughing and crying out. Not like weeping, but sort of crying out with joy. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Maybe it's that the dam has burst. But whatever it is, it's a nice joyous scene in a in a happy episode of this show. What I love is they screwed up when they... The, uh, the bridge, in addition to being a totally different configuration than it was in the original... Uh, you know, when we, when we originally see it in Star Trek three has acquired a hatch to the outside, but when they blow the hatch, you can see, uh, you can see the movie studio walls and the, uh, the ladder in the background and, and the light shining through is clearly not sunlight. And there's, yeah, that's clumsy. Like all they needed was, it could have been nothing more than a blue drop. 
uh, like a curtain to simulate sky. That's just, that's clumsy. So now we're back in the Federation Council where the president announces bringing the accused and in March, uh, Kirk, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Chekhov, and Sulu, and Spock, who had been sitting in the audience with his father, Ambassador Sarek, he joins them. And the president says, you know, Captain Spock, you do not... You do not stand accused. And he says, I stand with my shipmates. And that's, um, again, that's back to what Star Trek, you know, is to me. It's that these people, they are family and they stand together. Captain Spock, you do not stand accused. Mr. President, I stand with my shipmates. As you wish. The charges and specifications are conspiracy, assault on Federation officers, Theft of Federation property, namely the Starship Enterprise. Sabotage of the USS Excelsior. Willful destruction of Federation property, specifically the aforementioned USS Enterprise. And finally, disobeying direct orders of the Starfleet commander. Admiral Kirk, how do you plead? On behalf of all of us, Mr. President, I'm authorized to plead guilty. So entered. Because of certain mitigating circumstances, all charges but one are summarily dismissed. The remaining charge, disobeying orders of a superior officer, is directed solely at Admiral Kirk. I'm sure the Admiral will recognize the necessity of keeping discipline in any chain of command. I do, sir. James T. Kirk, it is the judgment of this council that you be reduced in rank to captain. And that as a consequence of your new rank, you be given the duties for which you have repeatedly demonstrated unswerving ability. The command of a starship. Now, I do notice that uh, Commander Chapel is in the Federation Council chambers as well, though she has no reason to be there other than she's sort of, you know, kind of sort of part of that family. I notice Jillian is there in some funky 23rd century jumpsuit. Okay, whatever. But in the meantime, all is well, and there's congratulations all around. And Kirk speaks to Jillian, now Captain Kirk, and, and, and she sort of takes off. He says, well, where are you going? He says, well, I'm on a science vessel. I have, you know, all these hundreds of years of catching up to do. And she kisses him on the cheek and says, you know, see you around the galaxy. And then there's this very touching scene between uh, Captain Spock and Ambassador Sarek in which they essentially, they conclude a conversation that started in the original series episode journey to babel father i'm returning to vulcan within the hour i would like to take my leave of you it was most kind of you to make this effort it was no effort you are my son besides i'm most impressed with your performance in this crisis most kind as I recall, I opposed your enlistment in Starfleet. It is possible that judgment was incorrect. Your associates are people of good character. 
They are my friends. Yes, of course. Do you have a message for your mother? Yes. Tell her I feel fine. So now we're back at Space Dock with the crew aboard a shuttle being taken to their new ship. And Sulu says, you know, I hope we get Excelsior. And Scotty says, why would you want that bucket of bolts? And of course, it turns out they've got a brand new ship called Enterprise NCC-1701A. And they get aboard. And the last thing we see is them aboard this beautiful new bridge, very white and shiny. And Kirk says, let's see what she's got. And off they warp. And that's sort of the film. The credits are also kind of unique for a Star Trek film. It starts off with stills of all, uh, still shots of all of the uh, the main characters uh, taken from the film, and what I'll notice is that they're all ex- all the characters are showing expressions of joy, except Spock, of course. And then they show various scenes from the film all the way through the credits. And what I'll note is that with very few exceptions, they are all positive moments. They are all funny moments or happy moments or moments of triumph. Uh, One thing I did notice reading the credits is that Commander Rand, remember Yeoman Janice Rand from the original series, she is in there. I was pretty sure I had spotted her. Uh, What threw me is that she was wearing an enlisted uniform despite being a commander. And I think that's just a matter of you know, a lack of attention to detail on the costumer's part. It's it's nice that they throw the actress, Grace Lee Whitney, some some work that, you know, she was seen very briefly in, in Star Trek, the motion picture as the uh, uh, the transporter chief. And then we see her in Star Trek, the end of Star Trek three, watching the Enterprise come into a space dock. And we see her very briefly here, just like we see Chapel. And I guess that's nice. I imagine that's Roddenberry's doing. I had, I think I'd said at the beginning of the film, maybe I hadn't, I don't remember. I wasn't sure how involved Roddenberry was with this film because he was so busy being involved with you know, creating Star Trek The Next Generation. But I noticed that he's in the credits and so is a woman named Susan Sackett, who was Roddenberry's longtime assistant. So that's there, you know, so that was kind of neat. And, you know, so yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd ever actually watched the credits for a Star Trek film before, um, but I did watch this all the way through. So all said and done, I enjoyed this film. It's not as good as the other two. It's the it's the least of the three. I won't say it's the worst of the three, because that suggests it's a bad film, and it's not. Uh, Star Trek Four is a wonderful film. It's a beautiful film. It's it's, I mean, it's it's shot well certainly, but mostly that it's just, it has a good feel to it. It's a joyous end to a story that's you know quite dark and grim and sad and full of sacrifice and this is a beautiful ending to it and sort of leads us off into the future you know with the new ship the enterprise a and there's only great things ahead of us Uh, if only they'd known that was star trek 5 and what a disaster that was maybe someday i'll do star trek 5 maybe that will be at the end of season 3 of this podcast i'll tear apart star trek 5 because it is an 80s film but I'm just so deeply unhappy with that movie. I mean, everyone was. I mean, Roddenberry declared it apocryphal, which is to say it's not canon. But maybe someday I'll do it. But in the meantime, I guess just to look back on this trilogy, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, there is a reason that this trilogy is the, is the best of all of the movies. I mean, how many movies were there? There were six original. There were four next gens. There were three remakes. So that's 
was that six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen films, thirteen Star Trek films, and these are the three I most recommend. I also recommend Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Skip five; it's garbage, and go on to Star Trek six. Uh, in fact, the only movies I, I recommend you don't watch other than Star Trek five are the the J.J. Abrams garbage films. Yeah, sorry, they're bad films, but these films are wonderful. They show the crew at their best. You know, closing ranks among themselves to to help a member of their family. These are, you know, as I said at the beginning of the film, these are highly skilled people who have good intentions going out into the universe to do good. And that's probably why I like Star Trek as much as I do. Well, it is why. It's not probably why. It is why I like Star Trek as much as I do. And so there it is. I hope you've enjoyed this trilogy of solo episodes. It's It's not what I intend to do a lot of. Frankly, just we didn't have a, we only had five other episodes for the season uh, before summer got busy, so I decided to add these, and I hope you've enjoyed them. And there it is. We'll see you soon on We Came from the 80s. 